And stories are really important to us. We are formed by the stories that we hear and the stories that love stories. And I think part of the reason that we so love a story, whether it's a TV show we're watching a book, understand ourselves and how we understand the world. Just a few days ago, Hannah and I were trying to explain to the boys, we've got two young boys, trying to explain to them the whole sad, and we're going to have a king now. Um, and they, the only thing that they were interested in at all is, is he going to be wearing a crown? And uh, is it, when, when it's like, he's going to be on TV, would you like to see him? Would you like to listen to him? Is he going to be wearing a crown? And so we tried to then explain to them about the coronation. Like, he's not going to be wearing it yet, but he will be, and they'll be on TV and all of that. And of course, the way that we explained it to them was through Queen Elsa's uh, coronation in the, in the film Frozen. That's the, the cultural reference point that worked for them. But on a much... Deeper level, stories operate much deeper for us. They, they help us understand the way that the world works. They teach us about the idea of, of adventure. There's a dragon out there, that not actually out there, <laughs> it's not, not an announcement. There's a dragon out there that needs slaying, and maybe I will have a significant part to play in that story. Or it teaches us about romance, that maybe I will be the one that somehow the unlikely person that gets to marry the princess. Uh, for me, it was always Princess Jasmine from Aladdin, big crush for eight-year-old Duncan. <laughs> teaches us about justice, that we know intuitively when we see it in stories, if we see something that's wrong, we know that wrong has to be put right. It teaches us about love. Stories teach us about love about how all of us, we deeply need somebody to love us just as we are unconditionally. I think this is the reason that stories hook us in so much. That the world that we live in is a confusing place, right? And we desperately, we want to understand, how does this world work? How should I think about myself? Who, who am I really? And what part do I have to play? And it's through the stories, the films we watch, the books we read, even some of the narratives that we see on the news that we start to understand and we find answers. And today we are turning to the book of Exodus, uh, which is going to be our main teaching series throughout um, the next few months until the beginning of February. And we are turning to a story that became the story, the story that formed the people of God, the story they'd tell over and over again that would be told from generation to generation, the story that helped them understand their whole, the whole shape of how the world worked for these people. But unlike most stories, this story actually happened. That this is a story of how the, how the God of all history that we have been worshipping today has acted in history. This is not a kind of Hollywood, this is based on real life events kind of thing, which basically means that the name of the main character and his dog is accurate, and then the rest is just interpreted with large helpings of artistic license to try and get the punters in. No, 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 this really happened. And in fact, if you were to ask me, what is one book in the Bible that would be good for understanding who God is, how he, uh, how he has worked in the world, who we are as people because of who God has revealed himself to be, and at the same time then answers some of those deep questions that we all have. Luckily, I don't actually have to choose, but I would say this is one of the books that would be right up there. So if you are new to church and you're new to all of this and trying to understand the Bible and who God is, or if you're just new to Revelation Church, congratulations, you have picked a great Sunday to come along. Exodus is a story of liberation. Or the Bible word would perhaps be redemption, of a people who are in slavery being set free from that slavery. But of course, before we see what the life of freedom looks like and what they've been saved into, we need to get a grasp of, well, what was life like? What did they need to be freed from? 
And the evil that the people of God are under is where the story begins. But yet today, we are going to look at the first two chapters, and we're going to see how even in these first two chapters, even as evil is raging, God is starting to work in unexpected ways. That The redemption of his people is starting to take shape and starting to happen. So today's message is called One Drawn Out, and we're going to read from the text in chapter 2 in just a moment. Um, so do turn there if you've got a Bible to Exodus chapter 2. The words will be on the screen when I, when I read them. Um, but first, a little bit of context from chapter 1, just to bring us up to speed. The book of Exodus follows on immediately from the story of Joseph that happens at the end of Genesis, where God's chosen family has been, that God has been raising and nurturing through the whole book of Genesis. It looks like it's on the brink of death. It looks like it's all over, that the famine is going to wipe them out. But God, of course, he comes to the rescue. And through this man, Joseph, he raises them up and leads them into Egypt, where food is plentiful, the family are saved, they live to fight another day. And Egypt is then where we find them as we open up the book of Exodus. But now this small, fragile family that looked like they were about to be wiped out has become this vast and mighty group of people. And you're thinking, things are good for the people of God. They really have come through a lot, but you know, maybe this is the happy ending we were looking, looking for. Not so fast. As we have learned, all of us, over the last few years, circumstances can change pretty quick. Just one moment, one headline, and that's exactly what happens here. A new pharaoh that doesn't, isn't really so keen on God's people emerges and a new regime comes in. And the people of Israel at this point, they're actually living within Egypt's borders. And out of fear of this growing people group that's starting to emerge, and they're starting to be powerful and influential and they're pretty big, the threat that they may one day carry, that Egypt's want to get ahead of that and get in front of it. And so before anything happens, they take action. And in the verses that follow through, we read that they ruthlessly, the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Of all the many options that they had, you know, draw them into the negotiating table, politely ask them to just go and live elsewhere, the Egyptians chose by far the most barbaric, barbaric option. They enslaved these people. The narrative kind of slows down, and they just, just to, to, to help, help make sure the, the reader understands, they were afflicted and oppressed with heavy burdens. They had to live hard service, lives made bitter. This is everyday life for them. Taskmasters set over them, occupying their spaces, coming into the land that they thought was theirs and that they could live in. They're watching over every move, making sure day after day that they are doing the hard, back-breaking labor that they have been asked to do. Little rest, probably very little food. We don't really know, because before we really then start to get our head around the brutal conditions that these people have now started to live in, things get truly bleak. As we go through chapter 1, we see just how evil and inhumane this empire, this Egyptian civilization were. Not satisfied with just exerting their power and their authority over these people through captivity and exploitation, we read that Pharaoh then gathers some of the Israelite midwives, and he says to them, if you go to a birth, if you attend one of the births, then, and it's a boy, then you are to kill that boy. The midwives are commanded to kill the most weak and vulnerable people of this group. Just back in verse 7, they were described as fruitful and strong. Things were looking good. And then by verse 16, they have been held in captivity and their youngest is being slaughtered. 
Chapter 1 is a steep and sudden plunge into darkness for these people. And yet, before the chapter draws to an end, there are these little chinks of light that start to come through. Right in the middle of the description of their slavery, in verse 12 in chapter 1, we read, the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Signs that God is perhaps still at work among these people, that all hope is not lost. And then that is quickly followed on by the midwives' response to, the, to what Pharaoh has asked them to do, where they are put under this intense pressure by this ruler, perhaps the most powerful man that has ever lived, to commit murder. And they play the situation beautifully. What they essentially say to Pharaoh is, Pharaoh, we would absolutely love to partner with you in your insane, psychopathic plan. Nothing would bring us more joy, Pharaoh, to be honest. But unfortunately, these Hebrew women are such a pain. They are not like the Egyptian women. They are, it says in verse 19, vigorous in childbirth. I have no idea what that means or what that would look like. But what, it, what they're trying to say is these Hebrew women, they are too quick at giving birth for us. To, like before we get there as midwives, they've already given birth. And would you believe it, Pharaoh? They want their babies to live. And so what they do is they pick them up and they leave before we get there, before we can arrive and commit genocide. It's such a pain. We are so frustrated. We're as frustrated as you, Pharaoh, but we just can't do it, I'm afraid. Defiance, resistance in the face of this man, in the face of state-sponsored evil and genocide, these few women, considered at this time the weakest, the most vulnerable, the most powerless, the underclass, they are pushing back. And we get these signs that maybe evil is not going to have its way. And this is where we pick up. We're going to read from the last verse of chapter 1 through into chapter 2. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born, so this is him saying it again, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pit. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sisters stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came to the river, to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, this is Moses' sister that we're going to learn of, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. In verse 22, we hear Pharaoh double down on his decree to slaughter these sons. And this time, saying it again is worse. 
Because in repeating it, we're saying this is not just a moment of madness from Pharaoh. This is not just kind of frustrations, anger boiling over, but he just needed to sleep on it. He's had a think, and he is now proclaiming to all the people, making it law, this is what needs to happen. This is crossing over now into policy. And going public, he's saying this is who we are as a nation. This is who we are as a regime. We are about enforcing systematic and destruction and extermination of a people killing the most vulnerable and weak. As this law is announced to the people, I mean, we just can't think for a moment that people would have just gone along with it, that mothers would just be complicit in it. No, this would have to be enforced. What we should be picturing and seeing here is that raids without a moment's notice from armed forces of perhaps the most powerful army in the world at this point, breaking into houses, checking to see, is there any babies, checking what sex they are. They're not paid to be tidy. They're not paid to be gentle. They are just paid for results. They are going in, checking as many houses as they can, bursting their way in, children being taken from mother's arms. Imagine the fear that you'd be living in. Imagine the tears, imagine the chaos, families being ripped apart. Imagine the noise and the screaming. This is evil in its rawest form. This should call to mind for us all of the worst regimes in history that we can think of. This ranks right amongst them. This perhaps probably exceeds many of them. It's, it's ugly. It'd be nice to skip over this, wouldn't it? It's not really the sort of new term, new series, fun vibes that we might be hoping for or looking for. It might be tempting to perhaps, so let's just give it a little bit of Disney's Prince of Egypt gloss, just to make it a little bit more palatable, a little bit more friendly for us, pretend it's a bit different. But it's right here in the text. That as we embark upon this journey in Exodus, we, this, we have to see this is what Egypt looked like. This, the main adversary that God's people and God comes up against in this series, this is what they were like. They enslaved, they tortured, and their intention was clear. They wanted to exterminate this vast people. This is not just, you know, how things were back then. This is not just a few bad people doing, or a lot of bad people doing some bad things. This is presented to us as the epitome of evil. Just imagine how desperate you would be to be free from this. Just any way, anyhow. This is the tension that the author Moses is trying to build up, just to think how hopeless you would feel in the face of it. Just, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing we can do. We are trapped in this situation, longing for help, longing for someone to come, longing for some kind of deliverer, some kind of redeemer, someone that could take you out of this, confront Pharaoh and overthrow him. Verse 2 in chapter 2. The woman conceived and bore a son. Here the dramatic tension is very obvious, isn't it? We have just read every son is about to be killed or should be killed and now a son has been born. But this mum has other plans. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him, in, hid him three months. A better translation probably for this is uh, more likely to be when she bore a son longing to keep him or longing to have him, she hid him for three months. This deep longing to have this son. Again, defiance. Again, resistance in the face of Pharaoh. That she 
doesn't just dutifully hand her over to the regime, but she is here to fight. And this is more than just, though, the natural mothering instinct to protect her child. You know that sometimes when you see a mother with a glint in her eye of like, if you get between me and my kid, this is not going to end well for you, sunshine. A little bit of that for sure is at work. But there's something else here. Scripture is so clear. When we turn to Hebrews chapter 11, talking about faith in the Old Testament, that's exactly what we read. It says, verse 23, by faith. Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. This mother is guided by faith, trusting in God. Along with all of the fear and the terror that was been experienced by these people, it must have also been an incredibly confusing time for them. God has made so many promises to them as a people. He said, you are going to be numerous, more of you than the number of stars in the sky. And at this moment, they are being killed. He said, you are going to have a land that is going to be flowing and abundant with milk and honey and and, and blessing for you always. And at the moment, they are trapped. They can't go anywhere other than where they are right now. And as they looked around them, it's just chaos and heartbreak and people broken by labor and families being torn apart. There is nothing that they could see that would bring any kind of hope. And yet, Moses' mother had faith. She chose to believe, I know my God is good. I know he will be faithful to his promises. I just need to hold on. I need to keep believing he is going to come through for me. So by faith, she stood in defiance against evil. By faith, she endured three months of what can only have been constant fear, just waiting for that knock on the door. And through her faith, God starts to move. This moment, without giving too much away, but I mean the book is called Exodus, this is the catalytic moment that then begins the greatest moment in the history of these people, the story that would be told for generations, freedom for many, salvation for millions. It starts here. One woman's faith, one woman standing in defiance against the enemy, and God starts to turn the tables on the great and the powerful. And that's still how he has been working throughout history. I don't know whether you've ever heard the story of Harriet Tubman. Is that a name anybody's familiar with? She was a hero in slavery in the US in the 1920s. She was born in the 1920s anyway. And as a slave, she suffered all of the brutalities of slavery. She was starved. She suffered beatings. She was whipped. She was given a, a, inflicted upon her a head wound that... Uh, It was with her for the rest of her life, lifelong damage. And she too, like Moses' mother, was under extreme oppression from an evil power, had nothing around her, no signs of any hope emerging whatsoever. And yet, she held to her faith. This is her. She said, I said to the Lord, I am going to hold steady onto you because I know you will see me through. She held on through faith, And as she did, God started to move. One day she heard God speak to her and say, the most dangerous, and ask her to do what was the most dangerous and the most foolish thing at this time, flee. And so, by faith, she fled. She 
went along the, what was called the Underground Railroad, somehow, miraculously, God keeping her safe from safe house to safe house to safe house, out of the, the slave hunters that were out there, out of the, the dogs that were looking for them, she got to safety. But not content to just use her safety and enjoy it for herself. There began her life work, where time and time again she went back along the same Underground Railroad, risking her life every time, and through the course of 11 years, led 300 at least other slaves into freedom, earning her, quite appropriately, the nickname Moses. One woman's faith, holding on to God, being obedient to him, defying evil, many stepping into freedom. But after three months, it's clear, hiding this baby in this house is just not going to work anymore. Presumably because after three months, babies become a little bit more, they're awake a little bit more during the day, making more noise, I don't know what the circumstance was, but the risk clearly is too great. And so another solution has to be found. And so she takes some reeds and some tar, and she fashions a basket. And in verse 3 we read, she puts the child in it and then goes and places the baby in this homemade basket of reeds and tar into the river. Now, every children's Bible depiction of this I have ever seen, this basket is an open basket, and Moses is like floating along the the middle of the, the Nile all the way, like baby Moses taking on the Nile, wild rapids ride for him, and he's always smiling. I don't know why. Every child loves to be abandoned by their mother and put in a river. If you've got that kind of image in your head, try and put it to one side, because we read here that the basket is closed. It has to be opened up later on, and it's placed among the reeds by the side of the riverbank. It is trying to tell us this is where the river was still, so placed in a very still place. This obviously is an act of desperation from the mother. She's like, I just need to do something. What else can I do? I'm just going to do this. But also, it is a continuation of her faith. It's a continuation of trusting that if she resists, if she defies, if she does something, maybe God will somehow come through for her. And so as the baby then is safely in the reeds, um, using the word safely there in a very relative sense, her sister, uh, sorry, Moses' sister Miriam, who we learn later on, goes hidden, and she stands far off, seeing what is going to happen. And the baby is discovered. Discovered by an Egyptian. Discovered by a member of Pharaoh's household. His daughter. Apart from Pharaoh, we're thinking this is the worst possible outcome, surely. That this baby has been discovered by someone so close to him. This must be game over. And again, the narrative, it kind of slows down and it's building the tension that we read that the, the, the baby is, is seen and, and she saw him and then she took him and then she opened up this basket and she saw the baby and the baby was crying. And all of this time we're like, we're reading what's happening, but we don't know what's going to actually go down. How is she going to respond? What will she do? And in the end of verse 6, she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. And in that sentence, we learn she knows exactly who this baby is. She knows exactly what she should do, what is right, but she also knows what dad would want her to do. She also knows what is commanded and expected of her. 
And in this split second, this moment where you think, maybe she's in decision-making mode. Do I do what's good? Do I just do what dad wants? Miriam speaks up and steps into the scene in verse 7. Then his sister, the baby sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? I mean, talk about boldness. Talk about risking everything in faith. This is what they call in sports a low percentage play. <laughs> she is essentially saying, hello, Pharaoh's daughter. She could have just kept quiet. Hello, Pharaoh's daughter. I know that we are now very much sworn enemies and you hate my people probably. I don't really know you. Would you like me to help you do something that is in deeply, deeply illegal, in direct defiance to your father, who is an insane psychopath, we both know, and is most likely going to get us both killed. That is what she's doing. And we're thinking, oh, Miriam, I'm not sure this is wise. I mean, there is faith, and then there is just essentially asking to be killed. But Pharaoh's daughter response is, yes, please. May I? I mean, you've got to love Miriam's quick thinking here. That she's stepping in. What she's basically saying is, biologically speaking, Pharaoh's daughter, you are not going to be able to feed this child. But I think I might know someone. <laughs> I think I might be aware of someone that might be able to step in and fill the shoes of, you know, a mothering-type figure in this instance. And so she runs home. And she fetches, of course, her mother, the baby's own mother. And then in verse 9, we get to witness this remarkable climactic moment, this scene where this mother, this great woman of faith who's held on and defied, and when she sealed this basket, she must have thought she was sealing the tomb of her baby. She must have thought, I will never see him again. He will never make it through this, saying goodbye forever. And now she is beckoned back to be presented with this son and told, take him, would you be able to house him? Would you be able to care him? Would you be able to feed him? Would you be able to be like a mother to him? Oh, and I'll pay you, verse 9. <laughs> that I'll give you your wages. The way this story resolves, it cannot help but bring a smile to our face. That this one thing that we know from verse 3, she is longing for this, to have her son and to be able to go home as a family together, completely safe, not worrying about that knock on the door anymore. There's no chance anybody is going to touch this kid now. It is part of Pharaoh's household. And not only that, we read in verse 10 that he then has a home to grow up in, clearly the safest place for him, given their circumstances, would be exactly where he's going to end up. It is the neatest of endings, the perfect ending. Almost too neat right? You read it and you think, really? Are you sure? But I think that is what we're meant to think. I think as we read it, we are not, we're meant to think this cannot be coincidence. This cannot just be chance. There is something else at play here. A story this perfect that comes together so beautifully, it must have an author. This is something we see so boldly and so brightly throughout the whole of the book of Exodus. And like any good author, Moses is not going to give the game away completely right at the beginning of the book. But we are already starting to see 
the supreme strength of a sovereign hand of God at work on behalf of his people, drawing all of this together in perfection. As it looks like everything God has been building throughout the whole book of Genesis is starting to come crumbling down, being torn apart. Their world is collapsing, and it seems like the situation is starting to get outside of God's control. Into chapter 2, immediately, God is at work. Through just these three women and a baby, here the supreme God is just authoring something so beautiful in the midst of chaos and wreckage showing that not only does he have absolute power and authority over evil, but this evil that seems so terrifying, he will bring it to its knees, such is his power, he'll just use any means possible that he wants to bring it down. He really will use the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He'll use an oppressed mother, just one person who's weak and powerless, got nothing, and God's like, she's going to be my secret weapon. He'll use a daughter who's very much following in her mother's footsteps. And then as his final flourish, he will use Pharaoh's daughter, his own household against him. His blood is used to fatally undermine his plans. We start to see here just how fragile even the fiercest evil is when it is in the hands of a mighty supreme God. This is not just evil being defeated. This is evil being overthrown, exposed, and humiliated in just 10 verses. This is so helpful to us. That often I think when we are confronted with evil and oppression, it happens to us, or it's it's a cause that we're fighting, or just that we see it in the news and events around us. Can't it seem sometimes like God is just doing nothing? Can't it seem like, God, it doesn't seem to really be in control of this. Or he doesn't care. He's not doing anything. God, why don't you stop this? We are, we are left crying out. But I think this so helps us to see this is how he works. So often, when evil is oppressing his people, he doesn't take the evil away. He doesn't take his people immediately out of the evil but we stand in faith against the evil. He gives us the strength and the faith to stand against it. Like these midwives, like Moses' mother, like Miriam, we too are, we're weak and we're powerless people, but as we stand against evil, he will work through us and use us to author something of beauty amidst the chaos and the wreckage. And it's so hard when you're actually in the middle of it and when you're living through it, to to see that and to believe it. I mean, these women, they had no idea where this story was going. But as we hold on, just like Harriet Tubman did, and say, Lord, I'm going to hold steady onto you, he will use his church in the fullness of time to embarrass, undermine, destroy even the most vicious schemes of the enemy and use our faith to bring others into freedom. It's exactly what happens here. A mother's faith and a son saved out of the waters. It's not until right at the very end we learn this baby's name. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses, this man that we are going to get to know very well as we journey through this book, 
His very identity is one drawn out of the waters. His very identity is one saved. That as the hand of God is moving in this story, we start to see he is moving to save. This vulnerable, helpless child floating upon the waters of destruction, the waters that are meant to kill him, we think his fate is sealed. We know where this child is going. But the hand of God is on the move. God sees and he is active and he is intervening. He reaches down into the water and he draws out this child, draws him out of death and places him in safety and protection. This is the story that God is authoring. At the beginning of the book, what does he want us to see? What does he want us to know about him? That he will do the outrageous. He will do this. He will intervene and he will save his people. He will save the lost, the vulnerable, the oppressed. He will set the captives free. Because as he draws out this one baby into safety, there's this hint that maybe this story is bigger than just one man. I mean, apart from the hint that we've still got 38 chapters to go, that's a pretty big hint. But in verse 3, the word basket that is used for, that Moses is put in is a Hebrew word that only occurs in one other context in the whole of the Bible. And that's right at the beginning, of, or towards the beginning of Genesis. And it's there translated as ark. Just as God provided Noah an ark, an ark that would carry him upon the waters of destruction, and that he, through the ark, would deliver Noah into safety. The same is true for Moses. In his ark made out of reeds and tar, his ark of salvation. And through Noah's ark, God saved Noah. Why did he save Noah? So that a people could be blessed. Immediately as Noah gets out of the ark, God says to him, right now, multiply and increase. The real story here is about all those that would come after Noah and experience the goodness and the blessing of God. And so it is with Moses. God starts with one man, draws them through the water that a whole people might follow. And so we start to anticipate, even in Moses' origin story, that as God has rescued just one through the waters of destruction, where might this story be going? Maybe, just maybe, if you know where this story is going, God might continue this same kind of work, that he might draw all of his people through the waters of death, deliver them through it, and out to the other side into newness of life. This is how God saves the people. Through one man. Begins it in one man so that all might follow. This is where our hope comes from. Because God himself made himself this man. Jesus too was born into captivity. Into an oppressed people. With a mad, evil, psychotic king trying to take his life. And he was rescued in that first instance by the faithfulness of his own mother. But unlike Moses, Jesus didn't just go near death. He entered right into death. And yet even in death, Jesus became one drawn out. That as Moses was lifted up out of the Nile and what should have been his watery tomb was unsealed and he was freed from it, to live a new life. So the father unsealed the tomb of his son so that his son might come through into newness of life. And what God has started 
in that one son, Jesus Christ, he brings to completion in us, his church. He started it in Jesus that we all may follow. We are born into the bondage of sin and slavery under it. But in his death, in his resurrection, he has overcome and humiliated the powers of evil so that he may lead us out in this journey, this journey that we're going to see through this book, this exodus journey that Moses leads out. He leads us in our own exodus journey, a journey into safety of the promised land and into the glory of his holy presence. Let me pray for us as we finish this first message. Jesus, we thank you so much that you started salvation obediently, faithfully, that we might walk into it and we might follow. We thank you that, as we see here, there are patterns of salvation where you you show yourself to be the one in control of all evil, all oppression, all that is wrong in this world and you show yourself totally able to overcome it. We thank you, God, that you are the rescuer, you are the redeemer, you are the one who sets the captives free. Help us, God, to look to your sovereignty and believe that although evil has been overthrown, we still live in these times where it is raging, we are confronted by it. I pray you would be giving us the faith to endure, the faith to stand in it, seeing things from this perspective, that in the chaos you work through your people to do something beautiful. And help us to believe that it is through us standing in faith that you will work through it to lead others into salvation. Use us, we pray, to be impacting other people's lives. May our faith be a testimony to many And help us, Father, to cling to this great story that because of Jesus, we come through the waters of destruction. We enter into newness of life because you have gone there first. We follow you, Jesus. We fix our eyes upon you. Amen. Amen.